brought to you by Calvary Bible Church in Burbank, California. We trust that this recording will be a benefit to you and will be a challenge to your Christian faith and walk. For more information about Calvary Bible Church, see our website at calvarybiblechurch.org or call us at 818-556-4840. Lord, thank you so much for your truth. Thank you for these songs that you've given us that we sang together this morning towards you and about you. Lord, thank you for... Lord, your church, body of Christ, Lord, thank you that you have chosen that as a means, Lord, to proclaim your message to the world and to, Lord, serve others, that you use brothers and sisters in Christ to help one another to be more like your son. And I pray, Lord, that that would be what Calvary Bible Church reflects, Lord, that we would all be helping one another to mature and grow in Jesus. We thank you for him especially. Thank you that he paid a price that we could not pay so that we could be a part of his church and have eternal life with you for eternity. Lord, we thank you for this time and for your word. May you bless it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we're going to take one more look, Ephesians 6, 4, which says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, some of you may be concerned. This is now the third message on just that one verse. We did 39 messages through the previous 134 verses. So now we have slowed down quite a bit. In fact, at this rate, it's about 60 more messages through the rest of the letter. So are you ready for that? Now, I promise I will speed up. But I did intentionally slow down here at this specific verse because parenting such an important issue for us today. It's always been important, but I think especially in this culture in this day, I have five children, ages 11 through 20 years old, and I often think about this. I often think about if if Jesus should tarry in coming back, what is it that my children will face in 20 years? When they are raising their children, what kind of world will they be doing that in? What kind of culture Given what we see and hear about today, what is it that they're going to face? Concerns me a lot. Because our our culture today has essentially embraced this attitude of intolerant tolerance. That is, that you can hold to any belief that you want, as long as you don't impose that belief, especially biblical Christianity, on someone else. To say that there's only one God, to assert that there is a hell, and that any who reject the Lord Jesus Christ will be there for eternity, to proclaim the sanctity of marriage as only between a man and a woman, to believe that the Bible is without error and all we need for life, to state that the Bible is the only book from God, to call sin as wrong. Espousing any of these truths today will label you as a fundamentalist, narrow-minded, And now even dangerous. Beloved, it is the age of intolerant tolerance. Dogmatic assertions are looked upon with criticism. And yet, wasn't it our Lord himself who made, I think, the most dogmatic assertion in history when he said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. That is a pretty narrow-minded, narrow-focused 
statement, is it not? And you can't get to heaven without him. And Jesus said that plainly. And if we were to do the same thing, just repeating those words, that the only way to salvation, the only way to eternal life is through Jesus Christ alone, just to repeat the words of our Lord makes you harsh and intolerant and even a bigot in the eyes of the world. Listen, we're, we're not raising children in a Christian nation anymore. An extensive survey done about six years ago by the Barna Group found that 38% of those surveyed, Americans surveyed, identified themselves as evangelical Christians. But only one in five of them would affirm the following truths. That eternal salvation is only through grace. That their faith is important, very important in their life today. Only one in five affirm that Jesus Christ lived a sinless life on earth. That the Bible is accurate in all that it teaches that we have a personal responsibility to share their beliefs about Christ with non-Christians. Only one in five of the 38% who said they were evangelical Christians would affirm those basic foundational truths of Christianity. That's, all, that's 8% of Americans. 8%. So most of the 38% of those who say they're evangelical Christians are simply professing believers. Professing, And that's why I think we're seeing a growing intolerant tolerance even in the church. Exhortation to repentance and holiness, calling sin what it is, preaching the Bible as the sole source of truth. The church is, they're moving away from those doctrines for a more tolerant and accepting attitude. The idea that I, I want a church that, that I can go to that makes me feel good, that is not negative, that doesn't do church discipline, that doesn't point out sin. And if you doubt me on this, just look up what the largest church in America is today and see what is taught there. And I say all this, I'm not trying to use scare tactics or being an alarmist. I just, I'm concerned that our children's generation is in danger. Danger not just from the intolerant outside, but from the intolerant inside. Danger from not just the postmodern creed that that there is no absolute truth, not just danger from the contempt of faith of our fathers that many have, but also danger from pornography and materialism and the pursuit of pleasure and evolution, the rejection of biblical marriage, Islam, and many more lures of the world. We're a generation away, I think, of losing it. I'm reminded of the Israelites when they entered the Promised Land that new generation that had come through the wilderness. And it says in Judges 2, 7 of them, that they served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who survived Joshua, who had seen all the great work of the Lord, which he had done for Israel. Israel was at a, a peak, a great revival, where it says that the nation as a whole served God while under in the time of Joshua and, and his peers. But after Joshua... And after the generation, his generation died off, Judges 2.10 says, There arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. Then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, and they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers. That's a sobering passage. To think about the generation that followed one that was serving God, loving Him, following Him, that after that generation died off, another rose up 
Completely the opposite. Loving everything but God. Brothers and sisters, I think we are in such an hour where we must be diligent to parent our children for Christ. To stand for truth and to declare it unashamedly, especially in our homes. I want you to listen to what Charles Spurgeon, a great preacher, said about 125 years ago. It's a long quote, so stay with me on it, but it's very important. He said, We admire a man who was firm in the faith, say 400 years ago, but such a man today is a nuisance and must be put down. Call him a narrow-minded bigot or give him a worse name if you can think of one. Yet imagine that in those ages past, if Luther, Zwingli, Calvin, and their peers had said, The world is out of order, but if we try to set it right, we shall only make a great row and get ourselves into disgrace. Let us go then to our chambers, put on our nightcaps, and sleep over the bad times. And perhaps when we wake up, things will have grown better. Such conduct on their part, Spurgeon says, would have entailed upon us a heritage of error. Age after age would have gone down into the infernal deeps. He's saying, just just think about if our... The reformers had decided things are too difficult, too hot now. I'm not going to say anything. I'm going to just have a quiet, a nice time away in my bedroom and kind of let this situation pass over. And he says, think of what would have happened if they had done that. He goes on to say this. It is today as it was in the reformers days. Decision is needed. Here is the day for the man. Where is the man for the day? We who had the gospel passed to us by martyrs' hands dare not trifle with it, nor sit by and hear it denied by traitor who pretend to love it, but inwardly abhor every line of it. Look, you sirs, there are ages yet to come. If the Lord does not speedily appear, there will come another generation and another. And all these generations will be tainted and injured. If we are not faithful to God and to his truth today, we have come to a turning point in the road. If we turn to the right, perhaps our children and our children's children will go that way. But if we turn to the left, generations yet unborn will curse our names for having been unfaithful to God and his word. Spurgeon had direct words there. The danger that his culture faced if people, if parents stayed silent. And parents, his word is just as relevant now. Those words that he spoke then are just as important today. We too are at a turning point in the road. We too must be faithful and we don't need new methods. We don't need new approaches. All we need is to know exactly what God has said and how to apply it in parenting. We need to know passages such as Ephesians 6, 4, where Paul lays out a basic framework, a basic structure of being a godly parent. There he gives two commands, simply, Father... Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And last week, we looked at that first command to not provoke our children to anger, and we spent some time on that, understanding what it is and what it looks like. And then we only briefly looked at the second command to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And so I want to go back to that second command this morning and dive in a little deeper And see what Paul was talking about here. And and see what he meant by the second command. So that we will be equipped to parent our children in this dangerous age. Second command, Paul said, to bring up. That's the idea of to nurture, to care for, to bring to maturity. And here Paul is speaking of a spiritual nurturing. As noted by that last phrase in the verse, of the Lord. 
And he says here two ways that this spiritual nurturing is to be carried out. That is by, given by the Greek words paideia and nuthesia, which are translated in most translations as discipline and instruction or training and admonishment. And both have the idea, the, the general idea of instruction. Both carry this concept of, of teaching, of, of educating, of instruction. Paideia has more the idea, though, of an active instruction, a training, physical correction. Whereas Nuthesia is focused more on the verbal instruction, speaking, warning. And taken together, these words emphasize training. They emphasize teaching. They emphasize instruction, correction. But Paul doesn't give us specifics here. He just gives these general terms. He doesn't tell us specifically what it looks like. In fact, here and in the parallel text in Colossians 3.21, where Paul said, Do not exasperate your children that they may not lose heart. In those two texts, he doesn't give any specifics at all of what that looks like. And I think Paul does that because of the wealth of instruction we have in the Old Testament. All that God had said in the Old Testament about how we are to parent children. Paul simply here, I think, is just summarizing the main thoughts, summarizing the directive to give spiritual instruction and spiritual correction. And in fact, those will be our two points this morning. Parents are to give spiritual instruction and spiritual correction. And so to look at the first point of spiritual instruction, I want us to turn back to Psalm 78. Psalm 78. It's a passage we looked at uh, briefly a few weeks ago. I want us to start our journey there this morning. If you remember in this psalm, again, it was Asaph who wrote it as an exhortation to parents on how to keep their children from becoming like the previous generations. Those that had disbelieved God, those that had rebelled against him, had turned from him to other gods. And as we read the first eight verses here in Psalm 78, I want you to notice just how Asaph has described the means in which we are to keep children from doing that. So I'll be starting in verse 1 of Psalm 78. Begins a masculine or a wisdom psalm of Asaph. Listen, O my people, to my instruction. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable, and I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known, and our parents have told us. We will not conceal them from their children, but tell to the generation to come the praises of the Lord, and his strength, and his wondrous works that he has done. For he established a testimony in Jacob. And appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should teach them to their children, that the generation to come might know, even the children yet to be born, that they may arise and tell them to their children that they should put their confidence in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments and not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not prepare its heart and whose spirit was not faithful to God. In those first several verses, did you notice how often, how many times Asaph refers to this idea of instruction, this idea of teaching? He says, my instruction, the words of my mouth, open my mouth, I will utter. Our fathers told us we will not conceal, we will tell, and that they should teach. These verses permeated, they're permeated with this idea of instruction. Verse 5, parents are commanded to teach their children. And what is it that parents are commanded to teach? What is it, class? The Bible, right? The Word of God. 
We're called to teach them the testimony of, the, of Jacob, the law of Israel. The scriptures is what we're called to instruct them in. Just as Moses had said in Deuteronomy 4.9, that we are to make them known to our sons and our grandsons. Our primary, our overarching, our, our chief responsibility as parents is to teach our children God's word. And you've heard that. This should not be anything new. This should not be new information that has not yet been revealed This is something that we talk about a lot, that we are to teach our children God's word. And notice how uh, Asaph, the psalmist here in verse 4, describes that. He uses an interesting statement in verse 4. He says, we are to tell them the praises of the Lord and his strength and and his wondrous works that he has done. He's saying here, you don't, don't just simply teach information. Don't just teach facts or rules or events or situations. This isn't something that we're required to to make sure our our children have this body of information in their head. He's talking here about we're to reveal to them the the God of the Bible. We're to focus our attention as we teach on Him, on His character, what He has done. That we are to declare the great things of the Lord, the praises of God. Because so often as we go through the Bible with our kids, we give a lot of attention to the people or the events in the story rather than the God behind it. The heroes in Scripture, as godly as they were, are not Daniel, Noah, or Esther, or Moses, or Hannah. Again, they were great people, but the hero is God who was behind them, giving the grace to do what God did through them, strengthening them, encouraging them, and helping them. He's the real focus and hero of the Scriptures. The Bible wasn't written to exalt man, but to glorify God. That's why it's called God's Word. It's His book. It's his testimony. It's his story. Every time we read it, every time we teach it, remember, focus attention on God. Focus attention on him. What does this passage, what does this story teach us about God? The aim of our instruction is not just to give our children knowledge of the Bible, but it says we are to give them instruction about who God is so that they may put their confidence in God, so that they would trust Him, so that they would depend on Him, so that they would hope in Him. They need to understand His character, who He is, so that they would place their faith in Him. And this verse also says they need that continual, ongoing instruction so that they would not forget what God has done and so that they would keep His commandments. They need to be reminded of the things that God has done so they will not forget. We need to be reminded of the things that God has done so we don't forget. So we don't forsake him. So we don't go our own way. Let's look now at another Old Testament text. In fact, it's the one that uh, Lou read from earlier, Deuteronomy 6. Another key passage. Like Psalm 78, Deuteronomy 6 also calls on parents to teach God's word. And it gives several helpful ways to do that. Several practical ideas and direction for parents. Deuteronomy 6. Again, a text I know that should be familiar to most of you. In Deuteronomy 6, remember the situation that we are finding the Israelites in. It is the next generation of Israelites that has come out of the wilderness. They are now encamped in the plains of Moab. In the fields there are waiting to enter the promised land through the river Jordan. And so Moses is now uh, giving them several sermons, several messages on what they need to know, what they need to understand, so they don't end up like the previous generation that died off in the wilderness. 
And in Deuteronomy 5, Moses recites the Ten Commandments and calls them to obey and follow those commandments. And then we come to Deuteronomy 6 and verse 4, where Moses utters those famous words, words that every Jew was taught to memorize from childhood and then recite over and over. Where Moses says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. And then following this key instruction and exhortation, Moses indirects his attention towards their responsibility as parents when he says, You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit down and when you rise up. By the way, and when you lie down, excuse me, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down and when you rise up, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Again, this text is very familiar, used in many parenting books and sermons and talked about and discussed a lot. And a lot of times in those books or sermons, People will often dive right in and begin at verse 7, where the instruction is given for parents and what they need to be doing. But we dare not do that without first going back to verse 4 and verse 5. Because after Moses declares soul allegiance to God and God alone, he then says in verse 5, You, parents, you, I want to talk to you first. You need to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your might. You see, he's doing just exactly what Paul did back in Ephesians 6, 4. As he's going to talk about parenting, where does he direct attention first? Upon the parents. In both cases, calling them to give attention to themselves first. Before you concentrate on your children, you first need to focus on your own walk with the Lord. Before we instruct our kids in what God's word says to them, we need to internalize what it says to us. It's so important. It is so important. That's why he says in verse 6 that God's words need to be on our heart. Before we go and give instruction and training and direction and, and leadership to our kids, we need to be following in that way. We need to be having a relationship with God that's, that's ongoing, that's, that's connected, that's vital, that's vibrant, that's growing, that's intimate. Moses is saying that's where your focus needs to be first. Then go and parent your children. It's the same thing that he said in Deuteronomy 4.9 when Moses said, Only give heed to yourself and keep your soul diligently so that you do not forget the things which your eyes have seen and they do not depart from your heart all the days of your life and then make them known to your sons and your grandsons. Focus on ourselves first. Because good parenting begins with good parents. Parents who love and follow Jesus, who seek to live out his example, especially in their homes. In his great little pamphlet called Duties of Parents, one of my favorite pastors, J.C. Ryle, said this. To give children good instruction and a bad example is but beckoning to them with the head to show them the way to heaven while we take them by the hand and lead them in the way to hell. Sobering but true. Because effective parenting takes place when parents are first devoted to Jesus themselves. It is then 
that a parent is ready to carry out Moses' command and his instruction in verse 7 to teach them diligently. You cannot take them where you are not going. And what parents are to do here is they're, te- they're prescribed to teach, it says, these words in verse 6. What are these words? Primarily what was said in verses 4 and 5, that we are to have our allegiance to God and God alone and that we are to love Him with all our being. And also, too, I think by extension, what Moses had said in chapter 5 in Deuteronomy regarding the commandments of God. But the goal of our instruction is for our children to to cultivate a deep affection, a loyalty, an admiration, a, a faith in our great God. And that comes from a parent who loves God and who's faithful to teach their children about Him. Notice in verse 7 how that teaching is to take place. He first says, teach them, what's it say? Diligently. Just want to make sure you're looking. Teach them diligently. Or literally, that, that phrase is, repeat these words to your children. That word diligently, or teaching diligently, has this idea of reciting over and over again. In fact, more little translation would be to recite, to repeat these words. Parental instruction isn't one and done. It's not, the, okay, I covered that topic. I don't need to deal with that one anymore. Parental instruction is something that we cannot take a break from. We cannot let up. We cannot stop if it looks like it's not working. I've told them all these stories over and over and over again. I've taught them the scriptures about who God is and nothing seems to be changing. I'm giving up. Look, we are not to be focusing on whether or not we are being a successful parent, only if we are being a faithful parent. Then in verse 7, Moses lays out what that repetitive teaching looks like. How it would flesh itself out in daily living. And that is essentially that we're to draw God into every circumstance in life. That He is to be woven and His Word is to be interwoven into the very fabric of our existence. He first says to teach when you sit down. I think he's explaining there this idea of formal teaching, of time of formal instruction. We need to have regular times with our family, with our kids when we're in the Word together. And I know how difficult that can be. I have experienced it. It is a challenge. I understand that. But we need to plan at least a a few times a week, have a priority that we sit down together. And when you sit down, you don't need to have these 50-minute sermons prepared, but, but just read from the Bible. And ask your kids and talk about what are some things we see about God here? What are some things we learn about Him? Pray together. And then sing songs to one another. Have some hymnals. doesn't matter if you sing well or not, but just giving praise to God is also a, an important part of parental instruction in the things of the Lord. And start out when they're young. Start out when they're little. Even before they can read, even before they can talk, begin to bring this instruction to them. Make it a normal habit in your life. And, you know, Timothy, in 2 Timothy 3.15, it talks about the from childhood... His parents brought him the scriptures that he was taught in the sacred writings. That word childhood there is actually infancy. From infancy, his mother and his grandmother were faithful to be bringing him the word of God. So we need to be doing that. Read them Bible stories when they're little with pictures. and Make sure, though, that you are also identifying the things that God is doing and focus on Him because sometimes the Bible story books tend to just focus on the event and the characters and not necessarily on the God behind them. So make sure that you do that and just read to them. And as they get older, read from the Bible itself. And as they get older and can read, have them read sections from the Word of God. And I know as they get older, as they get into high school, it gets more difficult. 
to have that focused uh, time each week. And just make sure that you do that if you can. And if not, if it's a, if it's a struggle to do that, schedule one-on-one times with them. That's what I try to do with my kids. Just regular one-on-one times together where we can talk about the Lord. Just times to have fun together, build a relationship with them, to pray with them to see what's going on in their life and how the Bible might apply to their circumstance. Read His Word together. And dads, again, focusing especially on you in this. It's your responsibility. Make a plan. How are you going to give consistent instruction to your child? And then carry that plan out. And even if your children are grown and out of the house, doesn't mean you still can't talk about the Lord with them, right? doesn't mean that that's still not to be part of the everyday life and interaction you have with them. And our instruction is not only to be in a formal setting, but also in informal ones. Notice what Moses also says in verse 7, that we are to teach when we walk by the way. We walk by the way. That is when we are out together, out of the house together. Now, in his day, a lot of it was walking. But today, how do we find ourselves when we're out of the house with our kids? (laughs) Yeah, especially here. Sometimes driving them from one place to the next, to the next, to the next, right? It's a lot of time that we spend together, actually, in our vehicles. Take advantage of that time as you walk by the way or as you drive by the way. Have a Bible in your car. Have your kids read from it when you're there. Memorize verses together. Don't use your cell phone. No. (laughs) Stay off the cell phone. They can be on it as long as the Bible's on it that they're reading from but pray together even. Memorize passages. You know, uh, we did a lot of that as the kids were young, and it's helping us now because we've forgotten so many of them. So they're helping us out. Our memory cells are fading. And so we're reciting passages together, and we're the one, my wife and I, stumbling along. My kids got it. But memorize passages together while you're in the car. Have some hymnals in there and sing once in a while. These are ways that you can bring God into into your walking by the way, or asking them things, how they're doing, and talking about things of the Lord, bringing God into the conversation. Moses also says in verse 7, to teach them when you lie down and when you rise up. And again, all these phrases are, are telling us the ideas. Don't relegate discussions, conversations, interactions about God just to Sunday or formal times of instruction, but bring Him up all the time. Look at times and ways all through the day and the week to bring the Lord into the conversations you have with your kids. To pray together. To tell your kids of what God is doing in your life. To connect the situation that they are in with what the Bible says about it. God's Word is always relevant. And if you're thinking there, well, I don't know how to do that. I I don't know how this circumstance and what I would point them to in the Scriptures. Well, then take time. Spend more time in the Word yourself. Ask parents around you who have been in the trenches. There are plenty of books and resources. I'll mention a few at the end of our time together today that can give you helpful ideas. But the point is is to be motivated and move towards in the everyday events of life that you are bringing God into that interaction. One time I remember um, in thinking about this with my son. who He says I've told this story before. I think he's, you know... Just embarrassed, I'm telling him. He's not here this morning. Uh, he was here in first hour, but so he's not, you can't all look at him like everyone was doing first hour. But it's time with my son Daniel. He was playing baseball. He was in his first year of live pitching. And that guy couldn't hit the ball to save his life. And we spent the first couple games just watching him whiff pitch after pitch. And, you know, he was pretty discouraged about that. He was really bummed about it. So 
we spent some time talking about it. And I use the opportunity to say, son, why don't you ask the Lord to help you? Maybe next game, why don't you pray a little bit? Ask God just to, to give you help to be able to hit the ball. You know, maybe he will uh, answer that prayer or maybe he won't. But at least pray to him and ask. And so the next game came along. That kid hit every ball that came to him. Got a, I think he got on base almost every time. And he was so excited. His mom and I are cheering. And after the game, I asked him, I said, son, you did great. What, did you pray to God before the game? And he says, yeah, he has a big smile on his face. I was so encouraged, you know. So I thought next game, next week rolled around and I just wanted to see how this little seed of faith was growing in my boy. And so after, uh, before the game had started, I went up to him and said, well, so did you pray? And he looks at me and he says, no, I, I don't need to now. I'm good. <laughs> Back to the drawing board. So we had a little discussion about pride and humility in that conversation. But just a good example in everyday events of life as he's experiencing uh, depending on God, as he's experiencing depending on himself. And just these things, these are issues we all face, right? These are issues the Bible says something about. So look for opportunities. In fact, I, I want you to think back the last few weeks and interactions you had with your children. Did the in the moment conversations about the Lord happen in those times? Did you have any where you brought got into the discussion if you love god with all your heart then won't you want to talk about him won't you want that to be a part of your family the things that you discuss with them you know our children will gain a passion about what we are passionate about right our children typically root for the same teams that we root for they're excited typically about the things that we get excited about, especially when they're younger. And your spiritual instruction begins with an instructor who knows God and who wants to make him known. And a key part of that instruction is to teach our kids not only who God is, but also what he requires. Psalm 78, verse 7, it said that parents must teach the word to their children so that their children put their confidence in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commands. In Deuteronomy 6, verses 1 and 2, Moses said that parents are to obey God's commands so that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you. The expectation is that God expects us and our children to follow his commands. But what do we do when our children don't obey? What do we do when they don't Obey what we've told them or they disobey the commands of God. One of them being to honor their parents. Well, that's what Paul addresses in Ephesians 6, 4 when he says to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That word discipline takes us to our second point today. And that is a parent's responsibility not only to give spiritual instruction, but also spiritual correction. Here again, we find the Old Testament as helpful in giving us insights into what this idea of discipline is and what our responsibility is in regards to that. In fact, the book of Proverbs is a, a very helpful resource. And it's a book specifically written for parents. It's a book written to give parents instruction as they give instruction to their kids. It's a book written to give parents direction in how to bring their children into relationship with God and follow His ways. Proverbs describes God's world. He describes how it is designed and how God has put in place rewards and blessings when we follow in His way, in the way of wisdom, and also consequences when we refuse them. 
And sometimes those consequences for our children will come in the form of physical correction from their parents. Many passages, Solomon brings this up. He says in Proverbs twenty-two fifteen, Foolishness is bound up in the heart of the child. The rod of discipline will remove it from him. Or in Proverbs fifteen ten, Severe discipline is for him who forsakes the way. He who hates reproof will die. Or in Proverbs twenty-nine fifteen, The rod and reproof give wisdom. But a child who gets his own way brings shame to his mother. Or Proverbs twenty-three thirteen, Do not hold discipline back from the child. Although you strike him with the rod, he will not die. You shall strike him with the rod and rescue his soul from Sheol. Now these verses may seem and sound cruel and harsh. A rod striking my child? And there are many even in the church today who believe that physical correction should not only be avoided, but that it is wrong and that it is unbiblical. And I can understand that. I can understand the reasons for a parent's uneasiness. Maybe they've experienced, maybe you've experienced terrible abuse in your past. Maybe you've known somebody that has gone through that. We see it a lot in our world today. But please, please hang with me for the next few minutes and don't let the wrongs that have been done to you or that you have heard about, don't let those things prevent you from seeing how God desires you to rightly shepherd your child. I hope you will see that godly spiritual Correction is very different from that selfish and abusive correction that many have given. Now, some don't, they just dismiss these passages as Proverbs. They, they indicate or feel that they aren't even part of God's word. In fact, one author said this, We're very sorry to learn that you subscribe to Proverbs hitting. You probably are unaware that the book of Proverbs is one of 12 books that Christian scholars do not agree as to whether or not it even belongs in the Bible. So it is, of course, better for Christians to listen to Jesus in the Gospels because the Gospels have been universally accepted as belonging in the Bible. They had earlier talked about um, when Jesus said to treat others as you want to be treated, the golden rule, that that's the rule that should shape parenting, and that does not include correction, physical correction. They went on to say, God was displeased with Solomon, an idolater, a polygamist, a slave whipper, a murderer. Surely you can find a better role model for Christian family values than Solomon. Their statement is wrong on so many levels. I mean, Proverbs was accepted in Jesus' day as the word of God, as seen by the fact that many New Testament authors quote from Proverbs. We can be certain that the words that Solomon and others penned in the book of Proverbs came from the same Holy Spirit and are just as inspired as the words that we read from in the Gospels. And Solomon was indeed a sinful man, as every other human author of Scripture was a sinful man. But God chose to give us His wisdom through Solomon. Now, others may not take such a radical approach and say, well, Proverbs shouldn't even be there. Some, they dismiss the Proverbs as not being prescriptive or mandates. I mentioned this last week, that the book of Proverbs contains truisms, general life principles, with this in mind, they say that physical correction is not explicitly mandated. It's not commanded, so parents don't have to do it. Now, while Proverbs are indeed general truths, not intended to be uh, promises or guarantees, we need to remember that Proverbs is a book of what? Wisdom, right? Whose wisdom? God's wisdom, as given through Solomon and other writers. It describes what God says and how we should apply His truth in our lives. It's a skill in living that He's giving us. Proverbs 1-2 gives the purpose of the book 
When he says to know wisdom and instruction, to discern the sayings of understanding, to receive instruction in wise behavior, righteousness, justice, and equity. And then he goes on to say in Proverbs 1, 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom but, or knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. He's saying there's simply the, the wise person wants to know how to live life rightly before God and so will follow in the ways of wisdom that are given in the book of Proverbs and in Scripture. But the fool is the one who rejects it. Proverbs 2, 2 says, Make your attentive to wisdom. Incline your heart to understanding. For if you cry for discernment, if you lift your voice for understanding, if you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasure, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He says here, we should be earnestly seeking God's wisdom. We should be searching for it as we would search for a hidden treasure. We shouldn't be dismissing it because we don't like what it says. God says it is wise to bring physical correction when your child has sinned. And to reject this is to reject God's wisdom. And to those who do this, I would ask this. Do you have a better approach than God's? Are you wiser than him? Do you have more wisdom than God has? And why would you apply wisdom from the Proverbs on speech and communication and anger and purity and having a good work ethic and things like that, but dismiss what he says about physical correction? Is it that you're being influenced by our culture or by your own experience? Ted Tripp rightly said this, the the use of the rod is a profound expression of confidence in God's wisdom and the excellency of his counsel. And for those who would say that Proverbs doesn't explicitly command parents to physical discipline, I would say that these Proverbs essentially are commands because they define for us God's path of the wise. The one who wants to follow God's ways in life follows this path. I would also say, too, that in Ephesians 6, 4, we are actually given an explicit command that we must discipline our children. And when Paul said that we're disciplined, he did mean physical correction. And I want to spend a few minutes to show you why that is. So again, hang with me here a little bit. We're going to look at this word paideia that that Paul used here in Ephesians 6, 4. This word that's translated often as discipline. In classical Greek... um, That word had more of the idea it was only solely confined to education. Education in the arts, philosophy, and culture, Greek culture. But as the word became incorporated into Jewish usage, it began to also incorporate this idea of physical correction. In fact, an idea that became more prominent in its meaning. We see this in how Paideia was used in the Septuagint. Septuagint is a Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, finished around a couple hundred years before Christ. And if we look at how those Jewish scholars a couple hundred years before Jesus thought of the word, we can see this idea of not only referring to verbal instruction and verbal correction, but also physical correction. Proverbs 1-2, Paideia was used with, to communicate the idea of verbal instruction, where he said, and we just read, to know wisdom and instruction, to receive instruction in wise behavior. Paideia also includes this idea of verbal correction, as we see in Proverbs ten seventeen. He is on the path of life who heeds instruction, but he who ignores reproof, Paideia, goes astray. But we also see this idea of chastisement. 
I read earlier from Proverbs 23, 13, where it said, Do not hold back discipline, paideia, from the child. Although you strike him with the rod, he will not die. Clearly, there he's referring to physical correction. Outside of Proverbs, paideia primarily meant to chasten. In fact, in one of the most well-known texts we have in the book of Isaiah, we see this idea. In describing the suffering of Christ, Isaiah 53, 5 says, He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening, there's that word, paideia, for our well-being fell upon Him, and by His scourging we are healed. Physical pain is clearly the idea of the word in that text. When we get to the New Testament... Paideia was used to refer to these various ideas too. It referred to education in Acts 7.22. It referred to instruction in Titus 2.12. But it's more often used in the New Testament to refer to chastisement. In fact, if you remember in 1 Corinthians 11, where Paul was talking to the Corinthians and how they were having these love feasts, and then they would take communion together, and Paul rebukes them in that passage because they were taking communion in an unworthy manner by refusing to allow some who were there to eat with them. And so Paul, as he was giving them this rebuke, he said in verse 30, For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined. That's the verb form, paiduo, by the Lord, so that we will not be condemned along with the world. When he used discipline here in this context, he was referring to the the weak and the sick and death that God would bring as a consequence. And I would say those are physical correction. I want you to look now at Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12. Again, hang with me. This text is the clearest evidence that shows that when Paul was speaking of uh, fathers bringing discipline in their children's lives, Hebrews 12 has the same idea, uses the same term of discipline, talks about fathers, and there we'll clearly see that it's referring to physical correction. I want you to notice as we read through this text in Hebrews 12, how often the word discipline comes up. For consider him, verse 3, who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You've not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which was addressed to you as sons. My sons, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share in his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Do you notice how many times... The author uses that word discipline here. Remember the context here. Book of Hebrews. There were many who had been uh, come to Christ or made a profession of faith, and now they were reconsidering the situation. Persecution had come. Trials had come. Some had lost their homes. Some had come under physical persecution. And they were rethinking this deal. Hey, I thought things were going to get better when I, got, when I became a Christian, when I followed the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Things are getting worse and they hurt. And so some were considering rejecting the faith, walking away from Jesus. And so as we come to this section, the writer of Hebrews wants to uh, encourage and let them know something. That, this, that they, these things coming upon them, these trials that they're enduring, they need to look at how and why of the situation and consider what God is doing. And you notice here again, eight times in seven verses, he uses this word discipline. And the context that he is speaking of here shows us that he means chastisement or chastening. Notice in verse 3, he says Jesus endured hostility. It was a physical hostility because, as he said in verse 2, Jesus endured the cross. Verse 4 talks about the shedding of blood, likely referring to death. Striving against sin is also physical action. In verse 6, he says how God scourges his children, a strongly physical act. Now, some would say here that the Septuagint translation was used that this is a translation of Proverbs 3.12, and that scourging actually was not in the original Hebrew text. So they would claim that we cannot take it to mean uh, the idea of scourging or physical scourging here. But this is wrong for two reasons. One is that the word was not explicitly written in Hebrew in Proverbs 3.12, but it was distinctly implied. This is a a facet of Hebrew poetry where sometimes the poet will leave out a word intentionally in order to draw attention to that activity, to that action. And we know that the word should be there based on what else he says in Proverbs 3, 11 through 12. And that actually by leaving the word out, he is trying to emphasize the point. Hopefully that makes sense. Um, Just this idea that, 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 well, it's not there in the Hebrew, so it shouldn't be here in the quote from... In Hebrews 12, actually it is there in the Hebrew. It's implied by its absence. But even more importantly, the writer of Hebrews, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, chose to use the Septuagint translation, including the word scourge, because he meant it to be there. He was emphasizing a key point, that God does bring physical correction upon his children, and that it feels like a scourging. What's the author's point? God does bring physical trials in our lives, including persecution, as a means of correction for His children. Our Heavenly Father, who loves us, who cares about us, He uses physical chastisement on His children. And the writer of Hebrews here says, just as an earthly father does. So when Paul tells fathers in Ephesians 6, 4, To use paideia in their training of children, he is speaking of training that incorporates, that includes physical correction. And so parents, chastising our children is not only the path of God's wisdom in Proverbs. It's not only the pattern of God's parenting in Hebrews 12. It's also the prescription by God in Ephesians 6.4. He commands it. And again, this idea of a parent inflicting pain upon his or her child is difficult for some to accept or be willing to do. Perhaps there are visions of abuse and violence, beatings, neglect, manipulation. Some might see this as an an enraged adult that is giving a harsh beating to a defenseless child to force the child to comply with what the parent demands. But listen, this is not what the Bible is talking about at all. Anything beyond the controlled use of a rod on a child's backside in a calm, loving environment, anything beyond that goes beyond the scope of Scripture. 
Locking a child in a room. Denying him food. Punching. Putting down. Slapping. Calling names. Yelling. Screaming. Taunting. Venting anger. None of those are biblical correction. They are wrong. Discipline is not commanded so that a a parent can get back at their child for disobeying or or doing something that offended them. Physical correction is not something to manipulate your child like a dog into some form of desired behavior. That's not the intent at all. In fact, it's just the opposite. Did you notice the tone back in Hebrews 12? The picture that presented there was it the picture of an out of control enraged father who was enjoying the infliction of pain upon his child is that how god is oh you disobeyed me (laughs) i'm gonna enjoy this one there pow (laughs) is that the picture that we were given not hardly not at all look at verse 5 in hebrews 12 those whom the lord what loves he disciplines After rebuking the Laodicean church, Jesus said in Revelation 3.19, after he said some pretty scathing words, that was the time when he talked about you are neither hot nor cold, but lukewarm, and it makes me want to throw up. Jesus said that to a church. But then he said, look, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. I'm saying these things because I care about you. I'm saying these things because you're not honoring me. And what you're doing and you need to repent. That's when he said, therefore, be zealous and repent. Hebrews 12.10 says he disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. God has good intentions as he brings correction in our lives. Verse 11 says his discipline is meant to yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Some translations give the fruit of peace and righteousness. So what's the picture of discipline here what does it look like god's discipline of his children is the model for how ours should be it is physical correction from the hand of a loving father who is primarily concerned for the good of his child who's primarily concerned that his child would share in god's holiness that he or she would yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness and that brothers and sisters Biblical correction. It's not punishment. Don't use that word. God does not punish his children. God punishes his enemies. Because punishment is retributive. It's retributive. Retribution. Punishment is wrath. Punishment is vengeance. Condemnation. Punishment is hell. But correction is different. Correction is intended to get... One's attention. It's intended to direct a person to the path of godliness. And likewise, our goal in biblical discipline with the rod is not punishment. It's not payment for sin. Only Jesus Christ can pay for sin. But that use of the rod to inflict pain is meant to get our child's attention. Biblical discipline is not retribution at all. It's a rescue mission. As Proverbs 23 said, to rescue our child from Sheol. Biblical discipline is not a means of venting anger upon our child, but it's a means of showing them that they're on the wrong path. Biblical discipline is not for behavior control. It's intended to prick the heart, to prick the conscience of the seriousness and wrongness of sin. Discipline is not an end in itself. It is part of the overall biblical instruction and training that we are to give our children. 
It is not to be done only as a last resort or a threat, but it's to be a consistent part of our child training. It is for their good to drive foolishness from them. It is to help curb sin in their lives and the terrible consequences that that sin brings. It's not to be done in an environment of rage and anger, but one of love and self-control. And again, parents, never, never discipline in anger. Never do that. If you're angry, you need to walk away. You shall not speak or do anything to your child out of anger. Their offense in the end is not against you primarily anyway, is it? It's against God. And while chastisement should be a regular and consistent means of training, remember it is not the only one. Proverbs 29.15 says, The rod and reproof, that verbal correction, those give wisdom. And there are other consequences too that, that you can use, such as the removal of privileges or rewards or making restitution if they have wronged someone else or even the natural consequences that God brings in all of our lives when we follow the wrong path. But physical correction does need to have a significant role in the training of your child. And I would say to, to use this consistently, especially in the younger years. And as you do, you will see it as less needed as they get older. But I want to encourage you this morning to trust in God's example from Ephesians 12, Hebrews 12. Heed His command from Ephesians 6. Follow His wisdom from Proverbs. And don't listen to the culture and don't give in if it doesn't seem to be working. Listen carefully now to, to what Proverbs 13.24 says. He who withholds his rod hates his son. But he who loves him disciplines him diligently. It's not love to avoid giving them the consequences God has commanded you to give to direct your child to do what is right. It is not love to let your child believe that sin is no big deal and that God's just going to look the other way. It isn't love to ignore what God has prescribed to get their attention, to let them know you're on the wrong path here. You're on a dangerous path. You're on a path that leads to ruin, that leads to even more significant pain than you're feeling now. God loves us enough to give us physical correction. Well, we've run out of time. It's a lot more to be said. I know there may be questions. Well, what does this look like? How do I practically do this out? Do I give them physical correction here? What kind of instruction? How does the devotion look like? There may be lots of questions that you have. So I want to give you a few resources that I found extremely helpful to give further instruction and application on parenting. Calvary's website, we have a category called resources. Go there and select classes. There's a couple of classes that we have done here, which include online messages and also homework that you can do. A lot of helpful practical instruction there. Also, I found these following books to being extremely beneficial for me. And my son pointed out I didn't say the Bible first service. So yes, I found the Bible to be extremely beneficial. (laughs) Age of Opportunity. It's another great book by Paul Tripp. Definitely encourage you to get that one. His brother wrote the book Shepherding a Child's Heart, which is another excellent resource. Gospel-Powered Parenting by William Farley. It's a good one. And Teach Them Diligently by Lou Priolo. There's several other good works, but these are ones that I've found that have really been helpful for me. And beyond these resources, there are many parents here who, as I said earlier, have uh, been in the trenches in parenting their kids. And go alongside of them and ask them, what, what, what were some things that you found helpful? What were some things you did wrong? What were some things that you'd like to, to give me as insights that uh, as I enter this 
realm in parenting. And even beyond that, beyond all those great resources, we have something here at this church that no other church in the world has. A resource that is not found anywhere else on this planet. We have Brock Boldy. So when all else fails, you can go to him with any of your parenting questions. But seriously, you know, we, as I said at the beginning, we face a difficult challenge. To parent in this day and age, to consider what is coming down the road for our children. How do we prepare them for that? And remembering that as Paul moves, as we move further in Ephesians toward the end, he's going to bring up a, an enemy that's at work. And that enemy is focusing his, his sights on the next generation. He's pretty much done with ours. He's moving towards that next generation. Trying to lead them away from God. And we need to remember as parents that we have the Holy Spirit and His Word. We have the gospel of Jesus Christ that transforms hearts. And we have a loving Father to whom we can bring all of our burdens and cast them before Him and ask Him for help. So don't lose heart. Keep bringing your children to Jesus and keep bringing Jesus to your children. Bring your children to Jesus in prayer and bring them to Him in your example and in your instruction and in your correction. Let's pray now and ask God to help us do that. Lord, I know my words are inadequate to communicate all that you've instructed in regards to parenting. Lord, we, we thank you for the privilege that you've given us, those of us who have kids, the, the responsibility to shepherd them. Lord, please strengthen us. Please give us wisdom. Please give us a boldness and a courage to apply the things you've called us to do. Lord, it is difficult to correct our children. Lord, you know how much of a struggle for me and just a, a burden to cause pain to my child. And Lord, the times when I failed and did it in anger. And Lord, we are sinful beings. We, we fail in so many ways. We need your help, God. We need your guidance and direction. Lord, help us to be as Christ before our kids, to show them the beauty and the wonder of our Savior and, and through the means that you've given us in instructing our children and, and verbally correcting them and bringing physical correction and being an example before them, having your word, Lord, through the power of your Spirit, help us in these ways, Lord, to, to bring them to our Savior so that they may embrace Him. Lord, thank you for the encouragement to know that the trials that you've brought in our lives are coming as from the hand of a loving Father who cares for our good, who loves us, who desires to conform us to the image of Christ, who desires that we share in His holiness, who wants these trials and these difficulties to work in us a, a great yield of peaceful fruit of righteousness. You're a good Father, a great God. And in Your name, in the name of Your Son, and in the power of the Spirit, we pray. Amen.